You can flip to Leviticus 19.15. There are four texts that I want to look at um, today, and uh, you don't have to flip to all of them, but you might want to just stick your pinky there in Leviticus 19.15. I want to read Exodus 12.49, that passage in Leviticus, uh, Job 8.3, and then Habakkuk 1.4. So you can pick Leviticus if you want to hang out there. So let's, I'm going to read those um, passages. These are the words of God. The same law shall apply to him that is a native and to the stranger who sojourns among you. Exodus 12:49. Leviticus 19:50 says, "You shall do no unrighteousness or injustice in a court. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person who is great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor." And Job 8 verse 3 says, "Does God pervert judgment, or does the Almighty prefer pervert justice?" And then lastly, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 4 says, Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore injustice proceeds. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we ask and pray that you would equip your church to advance biblical social justice in the land. Um, we lament the tragedies of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, to name only but three recent cases of injustice There are, of course, countless ones, and we find this both disturbing and maddening. Father, would you comfort those families? May they know the peace of Christ, and may justice proceed in the land. We ask and pray for your church to repent of the great apathy that is racial injustice, abortion injustice, statism, pietism, and so on. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So the title of this message is Black Lives Matter, and I want to start by basically shooing away all of the vultures who will no doubt attempt to besmirch and sully this type of effort. Um, Anti-social justice warriors, antinomian, premillennial dispensationalists, southern sympathizers, cop worshipers, respect for authority purveyors, stand for the flag fussers, public school defenders, generally authoritarian patriarchalists, um, anti-empathy reformed Protestants, obtuse kinists, everyone's a Marxist if I disagree, bossy pantses, and lest we forget, thin blue liners. Uh, I covered everyone, I think. Um, All are those who would be very quick to dismiss preaching this type of sermon. And that's usually because preaching is relegated to a Sunday activity rather than something we do and should be doing in the public square. Their reasons for decrying such measures may seem logical to them, but they are deluded. And delusions and blind spots and just, you know, (laughs) your regular unconscious ignorance, um, they're not, whether they're inadvertent or not, they're not ethically um, neutral. So we have to deal with them. They are based on idolatry, a false view of righteousness and justice. And frankly, as is always the case, the only remedy is repentance. But ultimately, I don't really care what they're going to say, so here we go. The Bible speaks of justice and injustice in many places and in many ways. With this underlining, one underlining objective truth and foundation, God's law word. Um, As is to be expected, the fact that something can be properly categorized as just or unjust depends on its congruity with or deviation from the law of God. We don't qualify something as just or unjust by deploying the presuppositions that led to the mess. 
Um, nor do we adopt this statist collectivist mentality in order to determine the righteousness of a thing. Rather, we do the hard work of developing something we talk about a lot, an ethical judicial view of the world. That is to say, a covenantal non-neutral view of the world. Um, something I've said for years now, everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. And that's something you can embed in your brain, even you kids. Everything is covenantal, nothing is neutral. Everything has to do with the righteousness of the covenant. Um, no one gets to avoid the, that ever. So in order to deal with the thing, in this case, we're speaking of, for example, police brutality and the inherent systemic injustice that, um, that it participates in and perpetuates, I'm going to argue, um, we need to be familiar with what it is God expects from the world. For example, God expects the world to bend the knee to Christ, Habakkuk 2.14, Philippians 2.10. This bowing before the Lord of Lords is for the good of everyone. For, and here's why, God's grace is the only thing that changes the hearts of men. God's grace is the only thing that restores the image of God that was broken in men. God's grace is the only thing that grants an individual self-government under God, period. No law works, does that. No law gives you that. Um, you can't force people to be self-governed. They have to be regenerate. They have to have, that's a fruit of the Spirit anyway, self-control. They have to have the grace of God, and there's no external pressure that's going to get that result, ever. So God expects repentance from the world. Indeed, he gives it to the world through the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And with this repentance, which is a gift, God gives faith. And our faith isn't merely a set of intellectual dogmas that we put on some paper and we call it good. You know, if only we could return to this 15th and 16th century. No, no. Our faith is action-oriented because faith, the faith that God gives is a faith that works what James argues. And then remember from James, something we harped on, God does not give people dead faith. It's not, he's not in the business of that. He gives good gifts. And a good gift is good faith, faith that is alive and well, that serves the Almighty. Not only does God expect the world to bow before Christ the King, he expects his people who do already bow before him to be adamant in the pursuit of the kingdom of God. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you. That's Matthew 6, 33. The word righteousness there can be translated as justice. It has that nuance. And indeed, it probably ought to be understood as such. Uh, I can't tell you how many pastors I've heard say, yeah, seek first the kingdom, seek first righteousness. Whoa, what does that mean? <laughs> Practically, what a, that sounds great. You know, the church has left the building. To, to do what? To do what exactly? Why are they leaving the building? Why did they go there in the first place? Why did they gather as God's people? And what does that do to serve the world around them that they're called to? So the two go to, together. The righteousness of the thing, that's the ethical quality of it. Therefore, the justice of the thing aligns with the righteousness of the thing. Okay, so righteousness and justice go together. Righteousness is the objectivity of it. The justice is how the objectivity carries out into the real world. Um, everybody wants to be all about justice until they have to do something. So the two go together. If we want the kingdom, we better be thirsting, which assumes a parched demeanor, 
thirsting for the righteousness and the justice of God on the earth, here and now, not just in heaven. So when it comes to our texts that I read, I have a few short observations. The first one from Exodus 12, 49. It is assumed in the law of God that every human being, whether homeborn, uh, a stranger, an immigrant, or a refugee, has equal footing under the law of God. That is the de facto position. There is equal footing. There is one law, not multiple ones that have equal weight or legitimacy. Um, I think that's part of the problem uh, that we have now is we have many, um, whether you're a a donkey or an elephant, as it were, in our political spheres, uh, we have people arguing for laws that are all humanistic anyway. So they think they're just as legitimate and they're not. So God's law we know is higher than man's law and it is certainly more equitable Because there is one law to adhere to, the appeal of all individuals, every individual, rests on this law and whether or not it is carried out. Okay, the deterioration of our social order is because we have a wrong God calling the shots. So the state does not ever provide protection, security, or safety. The law of God does. All right? You, You don't need... You know, kind of, I've said this to Jordan several times. Oh, isn't it, isn't it great? We're out here meeting and, and we were so, the police are protecting us. <laughs> no, you don't get safety. You don't get security. You don't get protection from the state in the law of God. The law of God gives you justice. All right. So there is no like proactive policing allowed. There is no, um, uh, you know, going forth and, and, and trying to stop crime before it happens. That is not a category in biblical law, ever. Two, according to Leviticus 19.15, there is to be no partiality in the law of God and the administration of justice. No partiality. Say it over again, kids. Say no partiality. No partiality. Thank you. Embed that in your mind. No partiality. It's not that American citizens have God-given rights. Because we like to say that, oh, we have God-given rights. And then suddenly immigrants don't have rights because of a well-funded Trump wall. You know, we get God, God's rights, but they have to obey the law. Right. We get the God, God-given rights. You know, these rights are God-given, which means that you don't get to dictate the rights of another person. Like you, they answer to God too. And the same is true for the application of justice for everyone. Black, white, police, or military are to all be equal under the law. So according to Leviticus 19.15, we should not slack in administering justice just because someone is poor. That's not allowed in God's law. No partiality. You don't slack in justice because someone is poor. Nor should we fawn over someone who is rich or popular, cutting corners because of affluence. That's not allowed. Over and over in Deuteronomy, Exodus, all over, Leviticus, God harps on this over and over. Don't take bribes. Carry out justice. No partiality. All of you are to serve me. Stranger, homeborn, it doesn't matter. There's equal footing. Also, uh, (laughs) justice is as fixed as the word of God, which is to say it is immovable and perfect. There's no need to tinker with it. Also, judgment of neighbor, be it in an acquittal of your neighbor or a sentence, 
ought to be done in terms of righteousness, Leviticus says. Which again, that presupposes the righteousness and justice of God's law. So, in other words, here's what I'm saying. It is God who tells us what is right and what is wrong, not the state. Three, regarding Job 8.3. God himself does not pervert justice. Okay? There is perversion of justice in the streets of our land because the state thinks it is the God that it gets to administer justice, but it perverts it every single time. Sometimes they get things right, you know, the blind squirrel thing. But God never perverts justice, never. Man, however, does. We need the objectivity of the law of God to stand firm in our pursuit of justice, and we can trust it. God does not do backroom deals in the judge's chambers. He does not cut a deal. He does not take any monetary settlements purely because, oh, it's a shortcut. Justice is never perverted in God's courtroom, which is good because we need something solid. Otherwise, cops are, you know, going to go out lynching blacks in the street. Number four, Habakkuk chapter one, verse four. When self-government is gone, justice is gone, and thus the law loses its power. This is a judgment from God. That's the very thing Habakkuk, as Chris read, spells out. Now, those are the biblical principles. Let's apply it. Partiality under the law is always and inexorably going to be a temptation. There's always going to be someone who wants to take a bribe. It is inevitable, especially when administrative law replaces, for example, common law. And local courts are replaced by law enforcement officers and other executive agencies. Okay? So I'm I'm going to work with administrative law and I'm going to... Common law, though... um, it is rooted in England. It's kind of what a lot of our laws are based on. I um, mean, it was very much more a reflection of biblical law. So I'm going to kind of use those together um, almost synonymously. But obviously we have administrative law, which is bureaucratic and oppressive and um, fiat in every sense of the word. But then we have a more common law or a God's law in juxtaposition. So whenever the state is given executive power, The state must oppress and subjugate in order to keep said power. Legislative power then serves the executive power. So if a president or a dictator wants power, obviously he's going to make sure the law is aligned with what his lust is. Um, And once this happens, then the courts come in line. And judicial power then is subservient to the executive power. This is a recipe for tyranny, which is most certainly a cake our government has chosen to bake. Since they are not servants of the Most High, they become servants of themselves. They're guardians and protectors of their own survival. Okay, and I'll tell you one of the greatest hypocrisies, I'll just say it right now. Christians who bemoaned over and over Obama's executive orders are the first in line to say, yay, Trump, we love his executive orders. It's the same lust for power. Now, the danger with administrative slash executive power is what we can call absolutism. And we're going to get into a little bit of philosophy of law here. Um, Absolutism is extra legal, super legal, and it's consolidated and centralized power. And I'm going to explain those. Administrative law is extra legal in that it binds citizens not through law and equal judicial footing, but through other strong-armed mechanisms. Um, It's not through statutes and judgments in a courtroom. It comes, for example, through overburdensome regulations, what we call red tape, 
okay? I don't know if you got a permit for this tent today, but we might be in trouble. So this isn't, this is not, again, through statute and judgment in a court. Um, administrative or executive law, then, it's not about court decisions, but rather powerful agencies adjudicating however they see fit. Okay, that's why you have police officers who, though ostensibly trained in certain ways, still, still becoming judge, jury, and executioner on the streets. So think of the FBI arresting you and keeping you in federal custody rather than a local sheriff bringing you to your accusers and the judge for trial. So in this way, administrative law is extra legal. It's also supralegal. Administrative law is supralegal in that it requires judges to lay aside their own minds and their own independent judgment before God and instead defer to the executive power as if the executive agencies were above them and, and are the law. You get cops who have been on camera. I am the law. Mm, now, you're definitely not. This was a problem, by the way, in 17th century England. It was perpetuated by the king. Um, hence, you know, the American um, resistance or revolution, as it's sometimes called. And it's something that we're repeating because of collectivist nonsense. So let me give you an example of why administrative law is super legal. You have a judge or a sheriff who can interpose on behalf of someone who is experiencing injustice well, for the preborn, for example. And they won't because, and what, are the, what does our sheriff say? Well, you have to talk to the legislators. So he has taken immediately and cut out the foundation of his own lawful duty and responsibility. Well, the legislators are to do it. Or, or the governor said so. <laughs> oh, so you as a man can't make an independent judgment before God on the righteousness and justice of the thing? You have to acquiesce to your overlords? That's injustice, friends. It's super legal. And lastly, administrative law is consolidated power because it actually combines all three branches of the government, legislative, executive, and judicial, into one giant business and bureaucracy, what we call the U.S. federal government. In contrast, biblical law has no need of executive officers utilizing administrative privileges, nor does it need even legislation. It only needs judicial function because, one, no new laws need to be written because the Word of God is sufficient. You may have case laws and applications, uh, but generally speaking, uh, you shouldn't have to ram through Congress a $2 trillion stimulus bill because that shouldn't even be done ever. But here we are. And two, no agencies should exercise coercive power because everyone is actually presumed innocent until proven guilty by a judge and a jury. Okay? I can't how you t tell you how many people already said George Floyd was a guilty criminal. No, he was an innocent man. If we don't start with that, you're going to see the ripple effect of injustice. So when... Executive powers take root. More and more laws are piled up on top of more and more laws. And suddenly everyone's a felon at some point in every day because, well, we don't know all the laws and everything is basically illegal. And given the fact that our governor has mandated masks, um, apparently breathing clean air is illegal now, too. So part of the problem here, yes, is racism. OK, this is a sermon about Black Lives Matter, but there's something underneath it. Part of the problem is racism. And this problem, though, is exacerbated by injustice and systemic injustice. 
Blacks arrived as slaves just a few short years after Jamestown was planted. All right? Our entire nation's history has been a scourge of injustice. And I'm not a Marxist for saying that. <laughs> it's just biblical law. You don't get to own people. Okay, and then you don't get to own people and say, well, we're a Christian nation. When slavery on the plantation became illegal, slavery in the prison system became the new plantation, subjugating blacks and other minorities through, for example, the drug war. Now, while I could spend more time on racism in particular, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't feel I need to. Um, I've already preached on this. It's a chapter in the Politics of Humanism book. It's out there. But at any rate, part of the problem is a misunderstanding of authority and power. And I want to explain that. Um, authority is never to be arrogantly or uh, arrogantly asserted or even physically exerted on someone. Okay, Jesus had authority, and the religious leaders were astounded by it. They were astounded, and this is because of his teaching, not his heavy-handedness. They didn't think, "Wow, that guy's so authoritative." Look, he throat punched that guy. No, he taught with wisdom, and they were astounded at his authority. So it was his teaching, not his heavy-handedness. So authority is only identifiable by people who follow it or see it in action, and they acknowledge it. So its authority is always qualitatively servant-based. Um, no one looks at a tyrant and says, boy, that's some great authority there. No one should, anyway. And here's the other thing about authority. If you have to pronounce your authority... You don't have it. Okay? Husbands or soon-to-be husbands or future husbands, children. You don't ever have to say well, someday when you grow up, well, I'm the husband. Obey me. I have authority. You just admitted that you don't have any in that very moment. And why is this the case? Because righteousness demands service, never arrogance. So when it comes to power, though, which is the only thing that can be expended on others, one is mistaken if he thinks that he has to wield power in order to somehow def defend or demonstrate his authority. All right? Uh, again, think of the police officer. Look at the badge. I'm the law. As he puts his neck and kills someone. This is especially important when we consider the black men and women who are under the boot of police today. The cop who puts his knee, for example, on the neck of George Floyd was exercising power all in the name of quote-unquote authority. But unrighteous exertion of power in the name of authority is never going to be justice, ever. It's not the way the kingdom of God works. This is the fruit of administrative law and executive privileges. Hence why the officers, again, they'll show you your ba their badge and beat you into submission. And here's the great ir ir irony here. If you have to use your power to elevate yourself and point people to your authority, you don't have legitimate authority anymore. You've just undermined it. Because now you're deploying power tactics, which is the play of Satan, not the Lord Jesus Christ. It's gone then. It's, it's proven to be non-existent in that moment. Or at least, at, at best, it's proven to be inept. So true leaders exercising true leadership have people following them, not out of coercion, but out of humility of heart. 
They recognize your authority, not because of the power that you have flexed, but because of the meekness of your character, you know, like Jesus. The most recent cases of injustice require us, if we are honestly preaching the gospel, to then find the idolatry which has given way to the injustice. That's the key. What is the idol behind the injustice that we see? Anyone know? What's the idol? And there are many, but what seems to be the idol behind it? It's a lust for power. It's a lust for power and doing anything you can do to get there. A lust for power. If you're going to honestly preach the gospel, you have to preach against the idolatry. You have to find the idol. So what are they saying about jurisprudence and law? What are, what are people saying? How are, they, what, how are they talking about it? What are they saying about God? What are they not saying about God? What are they taking from God in order to assert their authority? For example, omniscience. As if the all-seeing state can tell everything. God knows the heart, not any man. So what right do they assert or claim to have authority? So these are all questions and the answers are legion, but we can touch on one. The Black Lives Matter movement began because blacks were fed up with the injustice, and rightfully so. They were seeing a circumvention of due process, which is always inherent to the executive power position. Modern policing is all about, for example, prevention of crime, so they say. And guess what? You'll find one, whether you have to fabricate it or not. Um, you see arrests made for possession of marijuana, and there are videos of cops planting it on them. Police are notorious for springing traps because that's their job. It's inherent to the administrative executive position. You have to go find it. You have to meet your quota. You have to badger a woman while she's driving somewhere. Where are you going, ma'am? As if it's any of their business. Speaking of personal experience. Black Lives Matter then, for example, was formed because they were tired of being singled out for being guilty until proven innocent. Even if there were some questions on the individual and his or her guilt for a crime, they don't get due process, and the justice system is too crippled by administrative law to ever do it anyway. So every time someone, for example, is ex executed by police, we should know that they are killing an innocent man. He has not been brought before a judge and a jury, which means he's legally innocent. He or she may not be innocent in the eyes of the Lord, who knows the heart, but those are his eyes, not ours. So after 400 years of oppression, oppression, subjugation, hatred, white water fountain, black water fountain, they sure as heck have a case. And if we care about the gospel at all, we were going to listen and we will act. And while we're here, I said this earlier, Andy and I were talking. Saying all lives matter in response to black lives matter is a conveniently privileged way of ignoring justice and soothing your conscience. Okay? Of course every life matters. Of course. No one disputes that. Preborn lives. Every life. But are you willing to say that black lives do? Are, are you willing to humble yourself? Or is empathy too weak of a position? Are you, is that beneath you? If not, check your blue colored glasses. Check your privilege. Check your Lord Jesus. And by the way, um, people will adamantly reply, reply to this. I can already, the trolls are already going to come out. I already know. But there are good cops. 
let me explain. There, there aren't, but let me explain why I say that. Um, <laughs> there, they are, there are misguided, potentially duped cops without a racist bone in their body. People who, who are Christians, they love Jesus. Okay, they want to serve him. They genuinely want to help. They genuinely want justice to prevail. Okay, but the system is a goring ox. The system is corrupt. Modern policing has totally surpassed its biblical jurisdiction, and either you're a good, good cop trying to undo this perversion of justice, or you're not actually good. And I said this to somebody recently. Why is it, where were all the good cops? They never seem to just, you know, pistol whip their partner before he kills a man. <laughs> where, why doesn't that happen? And the same goes, I believe, for working in Caesar's household. So the, the idol of power manifests itself in statism, which is the sad reality of our day. While the church sits here and bickers over the term social justice, um, black men and women are being sent to the executioner in the streets, and the world desperately tries to figure out a way to fix it, but they can't. So what are they doing now in major cities? Are they planting trees and flowers <laughs> right now? No. Uh, no. Some are peacefully protesting. Others are just instigators. But things are on fire, graffiti is on buildings, windows are being shattered. They're crying out for justice, but they don't know where to look. They don't know where to tell them. And what's the church doing? Fighting over whether you should even use the term. Here's how to fix it. Ditch the executive power that's inherent to administrative law and embrace a brand new form of policing, one that actually reflects biblical law and the role of the judiciary. One which emphasizes a decentralized view of justice. No standing army dressed in costumes pretending to have authority. No apprehending of anyone until a local judge has a charge brought to him with witnesses. No more status protections in the name of serving and protecting. Communities can police themselves. Um, restore the responsibility of citizens' arrest, which should just be arrest. Okay, you have a moral obligation to loving God and loving your neighbor if you see a crime to stop it. And now you are a witness and there are other witnesses and you make sure the judge knows. Of course, nowadays you have to wait, you know, 90 days. Somebody rots in jail 90 days waiting for a, for a trial and then they're exonerated and they stole three months of that man's labor. That's slavery. There's no justice in the land. There's no swift due process Restitution is a long forgotten principle. Capital punishment, same thing. We, we just don't care about God's justice. And also, I would remind you while we're here, because why not? The Breakfast with Cops campaign, for example, is simply smoke and mirrors. It's a PR stunt to hide the re relentless problem of administrative law. Um, we do have a goring ox problem, Exodus 21 29, and it's the American police. It's the FBI. It's the entire kit and caboodle. It's the whole thing. Justice won't prevail in society, social justice, until the death penalty is given to cops and former cops who murder men like Eric Garner, Gregory Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Philando Castile. Stop. I would urge you to stop worshiping the thin blue line. They are agents of tyranny, wittingly or unwittingly. It has repeatedly proven to be this extreme abuse of institutionalized power. And the only protecting and serving I can see is protecting their own and serving out death sentences in the street. 
See, the problem we face is manifold and so much more could be said, but let's be honest. We don't know what justice is because we don't know who Jesus is. We don't know what justice is because we don't know who Jesus is. Jesus, we have him in the corner sipping a alcohol-free margarita with flowing blonde hair. We don't, we don't know who he is. And you want the heart of the gospel in a matter like this. Here we go. Christ is always moving towards sinners and those afflicted and oppressed by power tactics. Always. He's gentle and humble and lowly. He is always moving towards sinners. He is always moving towards the oppressed. He is always moving in that direction, not the power grab direction. He's always moving towards sinners in grace and in love and in mercy. Jesus Christ, he is always moving towards victims of injustice. And if you don't understand this principle of Jesus moving towards sinners, then you better take a good and hard look in the mirror because that's all of us. The gospel compels us to stop with the false dichotomies. I said this last week in our exposition of Jonah 3. We don't have to choose between the preaching of the gospel and the work of social justice. It's a false dichotomy. You don't have to choose between the two. Because done right, they go together. And when we are gripped by Christ and what he does for the sinners, for the outcasts, for the minorities, for the down and outs, for those in power, for those in the majority, when he moves towards us in grace, the sinners who find themselves turning to anything and everything but Christ, when we are gripped by that reality, we can be moved to action. Black Lives Matter and frankly, the sooner the church wakes up and says it, I think the better. Amen. I think the better. Let's pray. Father, there's, there's a lot going on in this country, a lot going on in our nation. And I don't know what it'll take. I don't know what it'll take, Father, for you, uh, excuse me, for the church to stand forth on the firm foundation of your law word and the application of justice. I, I don't know what it'll take, but I boldly and humbly ask that you would do whatever it takes to get there. And if what's happening around us isn't a indication of that yet, I do fear for what it will be like to get there. We need massive revival, Father. Massive repentance. A wide-scale reformation. And we've asked you this repeatedly. And we don't come arrogantly to you in that. But we do beg of you and humbly ask for you. You've extended long-suffering and patience and mercy and no doubt your grace we look at history, your grace has been all over it, and it will continue to be all over it. But right now, we cry out to you. We cry out to you in repentance for the oppression that we have perpetuated, for the blood guiltiness of the abortion holocaust, for the injustice and racism, and, and everything that goes with this false view as if the state is God. If we confess it as sin, we confess it as unrighteousness and we confess that we need your spirit. So would you humbly change us 
Would you change the world around us and may your gospel prevail. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.